This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call The Funniest Show on Television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 7 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm so pleased to be joined on this episode by the great, really legendary Ian McKellen, uh, who has done so many terrific stage and screen productions over the years, over the decades, and most recently, Mr. Holmes, in which he plays Sherlock Holmes uh, on his last case. And so before we get to him, though, I do want to recap, as we always do, what else is going on in the world of awards uh, and the awards season. To begin with, this past weekend was a big weekend for Oscar contenders at the box office. We had a few that did very well, a few that kind of tanked. Unfortunately, in the latter camp were Beasts of No Nation, the Netflix commission narrative film, their first, which was released in a handful of theaters by Broadgreen simultaneously to appearing on Netflix. So it did not do very well at all in theaters, but that is not at all a sign that it is finished because it does have the great perk of being available on Netflix. So that one, uh, not doing well in theaters, but still available. Truth, however, does not have a streaming component, a day and date component attached. And so the fact that it tanked at the box office is a bad sign for that movie, although it was in limited release, things don't usually turn around as they expand. So not a good sign for Truth, the journalism movie starring Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford about the 60 Minutes 2 Rathergate scandal of the early 2000s. Doing better at the box office were Bridge of Spies, the new Steven Spielberg-Tom Hanks collaboration, which opened very well in wide release. This one sort of like Lincoln and Munich and some of his more recent films is uh, appealing to an older demographic than some of the other contenders. And people in those demos don't necessarily come out on opening weekend. So the fact that it did so well right off the bat is a very good sign. And presumably as the weeks pass, it will continue to pick up steam. Speaking of which, The Martian continues to hold very strong at the box office. It's been out for a few weeks now and yet finished second overall this weekend. So very good news continues to come in for that film. But, uh, you know, everything was kind of overshadowed over the last few days by the news about Star Wars, the seventh film in that great franchise. And we have to keep in mind that the first one back in 1977, uh, which came out back in 1977, was nominated for Best Picture. So the idea that it's just a commercial movie and not a awards prospect is wrong. This one could very well end up being one. And the excitement is already building with the one sheet coming out on Sunday and the trailer coming out during halftime on Monday Night Football, uh, which also kicked off the ticket sales for this movie. And I would be shocked if that Disney release doesn't end up as the highest grossing movie of all time. 
Now, speaking of Disney, there's been some very interesting fun events happening in the Los Angeles area and uh, adjacent areas over the last week as other films continue to try to catch attention during this busy season. For example, a documentary about abortion called Armor of Light, which was directed by Abigail Disney, the grandniece of Walt Disney, was promoted with a cool dinner and event at Disneyland, which caught the attention of a lot of Doc Branch members and journalists who were present for that, yours truly included. There's also been a flurry of Q&As. I can speak firsthand about a few because I moderated them. Jane Fonda was out on behalf of youth in front of SAG nominating committee members. That movie is an interesting, uh, tough sell, but with such great actors, the prospect of acting nominations, including one for her, is certainly very real. Also, Brie Larson was out on behalf of Room and Paul Dano, Elizabeth Banks, and Bill Polad out on behalf of Love and Mercy. And all of those individuals are going to be joining us for upcoming episodes of this podcast. So that's something to look forward to. But today's focus is on a previous two-time Oscar nominee who is hoping to pick up number three this year for a movie that came out late in the summer and really won him great notices. Again, this is Ian McKellen playing Sherlock Holmes on his last case as he simultaneously battles something like Alzheimer's disease that's causing him to forget many of the details of the case that he's working to solve. It's a movie that's divided people, but a performance that everyone agrees is top of the line, first rate, and one that I highly recommend you check out. So without further ado, thrilled to welcome to the podcast studios here, the great Ian McKellen. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. And I pleasure. guess, uh, you know, it's a silly, it may, may be a stupid question, but what's the proper way to address you? You're Sir Ian? Oh, well, I am, yes. yeah. But no, you can call me Ian. In <laughs> fact, I'd be grateful if you did. Absolutely. It's uh, a bit of an embarrassment. It's not as if I've earned it. It's not like a doctorate, you know, <laughs> where I've done eight years and passed a lot of examinations. Right. But, uh, well, I will tell you that... Uh, some people, you know, they say some people are such a great actor, they would watch them read the phone book. Yeah. I can say, in all honesty, that you are such a great actor that I'd watch you cook eggs, because I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, just to get that out of the way, what was that about? What was it about? I don't know. Well, I was staying at the Chateau Marmont, yeah. which is an old haunt for, for Brits mm-hmm. like me, and uh, someone said, would I mind cooking some eggs? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I, I'm an obliging guy. Yes. I do what I'm told. And, yep. uh, but, but I do care about scrambled eggs. In a way, I'm afraid you don't in this country. And I, I, I think I, I have a superior recipe to um, most eggs that I've had scrambled. And it, it involves putting all the ingredients in the pan at the same time and stirring vigorously. It looked delicious. I uh, refer pan, people. Not, not a frying pan, uh, yes. an ordinary saucepan. And... Uh, so they don't dry up, and, and they're, they're, they're nice and creamy. I refer people to the video. It was very yeah, uh, okay. engaging. <laughs> so now down to uh, down to business. When and when and why did you first develop an interest in acting? Do you remember? Was there a moment? Oh, I was about three. Really? <laughs> My parents took me to see Peter Pan. Do you know that story? But of on course. stage, uh-huh, not, not, yes. not the movie. And. Uh, I was a bit disappointed because I could see the wires. I could see that they weren't really flying, and I thought, well, that's a poor do. Anyway, I was absolutely enchanted, and uh, I remember saying to myself, I really do, I- I'm going to be back. I wanted more of this. And my parents took me to the theatre a lot. The movies a bit, but live theatre a lot. And I wanted to find out how it was done. You know, where did they go to? 
What's behind that door? What's that door made of, actually? Mm-hmm. Uh, who made it? Um, but, uh, how, how, did, how did they get ready? Uh, the, the, the concept of a script and a rehearsal never really occurred to me. So um, I started acting at school, but to find out how it was done. So I, I'm rather pleased I wasn't one of those show-off exhibitionist kids who yeah. just can't wait to... <laughs> <laughs> to put on a show for somebody. Put on a yeah. show. Uh, but uh, I, I had a taste for it, and... Uh, I did more and more of it, and when I was a kid, if people asked, you know, grown-ups, mm. what are you going to do when you grow up? I'd, I'd say, I'm going to be an actor, mm. not meaning it, but it just shut them up. And, and then when I when I went to college, when I'd been to yeah. Cambridge University and acted with a lot of other people who were going to become professionals mm-hmm. without going to drama school, I, I thought, well, if they can do it, I can. Right, and, and I think it's interesting to note that uh, you never, quote-unquote, quote, quote unquote, studied acting, right, no, in the way it's... And so that's just a just a God given gift. No, <laughs> no, I'm a slogger. I had to learn how to do it. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm still learning. I, it uh, there are some people I think who spring from the cradle able to act. Mm-hmm. People like Kenneth Branagh. I, I think Eddie Redmayne may be another one. They mm-hmm. they can just do it. Mm-hmm. The, they're destined. Uh, but I wasn't like that. No, and. Uh, I had to learn. I had to do a long apprenticeship in in, in regional theatres, doing a different play every two weeks. You know, discovering what I was good at, and what I couldn't do, and and and, and trying to get better. Uh, now, whether a, whether a drama school would have helped that process, I'm not sure. And I've certainly never had a, a, a theory of acting mm-hmm. that I've followed. Uh, I feel a bit guilty, particularly talking to American colleagues who not only have got a method. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, go on going to class long after they become a professional actor. I mean, they are really serious, aren't mm-hmm. they? But I think I've learnt on the job, and I've done a lot of acting mm-hmm. and, and never been out of work. I'm very lucky. I'm touching wood here. It's not this <laughs> nice table. But um, that's how I became an actor and got better at it. And uh, it, it meant it meant that I took parts that other people mightn't. I would go off and work in little theatres that other people wouldn't because you weren't paid much money I would take small parts in movies uh, early on and uh, all with the aim of getting better at it and was the was the principal ambition though always theater or when did movies sort of enter the picture for you as a as a thought it surprises me that I've made a movie practically every year of a 55 year old career yeah I I would see my contemporaries Albert Finney Tony Hopkins um Maggie Smith um, going ahead and being in big movies, and I, I thought I, I thought I was happy at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Well, I'm playing Hamlet, I'm playing Romeo, I'm playing King Lear, I'm doing Richard the Third. I don't want to go off and do movies, but my friends tell me that actually all the time I was saying, "What's the matter with them? Why can't I do a movie?" Mm-hmm. And. Uh, it was only really when I put Richard III, which was a, 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 a stage version that we'd done at the National Theatre, and brought actually to the States. Whilst we were crossing the States, I was writing the screenplay. Wow. And I finished it in this town, uh, in Los Angeles, and I went off to make um, my first and last Western with Maggie Greenwald in, in uh, Montana, and I sent out the script and uh, spent two years producing, co-producing, getting it set up. 
And when I'd done that, I think that was a sort of calling card. Um, people in the industry thought, who is this guy? Oh, I see, he doesn't just <laughs> shout in the evenings, which is what <laughs> theatre actors are supposed to do. Well, I want to come back to that and to some of your other uh, great film roles. But first of all, um, I think that one of the – want to try to get down to the root of you, – you have such a – probably the most diverse – uh, fan base of anyone in the world, right? I mean, because let's just talk about it. And I, I, th- I was trying to think about what would the reasons for, for this be? And I think one of them is that uh, you're, you're obviously a great actor, but you, and to the extent that you would be entitled to be a, a snob if you wanted, but you instead have really consistently remained a man of the people. You show up on The Simpsons, Extras, SNL, mm-hmm. uh, and also a lot of big popcorn movies. And so I just wonder... Uh, is this has this been a strategy? Has it just been taking things as it comes? Well, I am proud of having had a career. Yes. And when I was a kid, I, I used to admire other people's careers. Longevity, yeah. it seems to me, a, a, can be a virtue. Yeah. And I never wanted to be the sort of actor who is is the same all the time. Although, you know, star actors, that's what we require of them. Mm-hmm. We don't want them to change, mm-hmm. do we? Always, who Cary wants to go and see a Cary Grant right. movie where he doesn't look like Cary Grant? <laughs> uh, but me, I like putting on false noses and beards and moustaches and, and, as you say, turning up in a soap opera or a, <laughs> a long um, sitcom. I'm just done with Derek Jacobi. You've seen it on PBS, Vicious and so on. Right. Well, that reflects actually... Uh, how interested I am in the business and wanting to know how it's done. I've even done stand-up. You know, mm. I, really? I have, I've had a series of my own one-man shows that I've done. I, I've played them here, God knows how many times, about Shakespeare, about yeah. being gay and, and, and other stuff. Uh, how is it done? It's still still the question I ask. But it also reflects my own, my own tastes, which are very Catholic. I, I'm happy sitting in front of a soap opera on the box or going to a Broadway musical or seeing the latest blockbuster or, or indeed it, it doesn't really make much difference to me if it's good of its kind. Yeah. So that's that's the test. What's this script like? Is it any good? Is it something I would want to see? doesn't matter whether it's comedy or tragedy or huge budget, small budget. That's not the point. The yeah. point is quality. And and if the quality is right, if, if, it, if it intrigues me, then I think, mm, let's have a look at this script. Interesting. So from my point of view, what, what, what's, what's my part like? And so we go on. Interesting. Well, and, and you, you referenced something that I wanted to just briefly ask you about because I'm not sure you get enough credit for this, but long before, you know, Rupert Everett, Ellen Generous, Neil Patrick Harris, anybody, you were, uh, you came out publicly in, in this 1988 BBC radio interview. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, this, this it was, I think it was during a discussion with a right wing columnist who was speaking badly against gays, right? Well, he was. We were were discussing a new, very, very bad law that the Margaret Thatcher government was bringing in, which made it illegal to talk positively about gay people in schools. And I thought, what, to keep kids in ignorance of the facts of life? That's not appropriate. And when I'm the fact of life, Mm -hmm. I got really angry. And Mm -hmm. so it was a good debating point to say to a man (laughs) whose name was Peregrine Worsthorn. Wow. Sounds like a Harry Potter character. He does. And he was a bit of a fool. And I said, will you stop talking about uh, those gays because I'm one of them? And it shut him up. It was the best debating point we could possibly (laughs) come up with. Now, look, the irony is that uh, a couple of years later, the Thatcher government, who had been attacking me and and, and my kind, Mm -hmm. succumbed to the inevitable because I was doing rather well as an actor and decided to give me a knighthood or recommend it to the Queen. So along I go to Buckingham Palace to get the knighthood. And who is standing next to me getting his knighthood? Sir Peregrine Worsthorn. Oh, my God. But that's the English way, you know. Be be nice to both sides. (laughs) Right. Carry on, yeah. Um, But, you know, coming out, I had been out for years to my friends and everyone at work knew and 
not all my family knew, and I certainly hadn't talked to the media about it, but coming out is a journey, it's a process, and, mm-hmm. and I completed it that day. Now, did that take a, a load off your shoulders? In totally. The sense, so you were, were you a better actor, a different actor after that? I'm told I was. Really? Because it seems, it's, I just have to point out, in terms of the film stuff, it was really in the 90s. It all happened after all coming happened. out. Yeah. That's my message to anyone in this town who thinks I've got to stay in the closet to be successful in films. Well, I didn't. Right. Don't know about you. Uh-huh. And actually, you know, there's no choice, is there? Do, do, you, want, do you want to be a, a famous movie star who has love scenes with ladies and in private be an unhappy gay? There's no choice. Forget the career, dear. Go and do something else. <laughs> become a director. Right. Become a gay director. Become a gay writer. Become a gay agent. Well, it's interesting <coughs> that you say this because... <coughs> Uh, because, you know, unfortunately, there's been mixed messages from people. Rupert Everett said it destroyed his career, and he pinpoints that he blames that. I don't think he'd say it, it, it destroyed it. He, he, he may think, and he may be right, that it impeded it, mm-hmm. that it was a fact of life. But I, I know Rupert well, and, mm-hmm. and he would not swap his honesty yes. and his openness and, and his joie de vivre for being hidden in a closet. A closet's a really nasty place to live, you know. That's It's... Dirty, it's dusty, it's full of skeletons. You don't want to open that door, fling it wide, <laughs> and be yourself. That's the yeah. point. And how can you be a good actor unless you're yourself? Right. You can't spend your life in disguise, uh, right. disguising yourself. And that was the big division. You said, did I become better as an mm-hmm. actor? I became better as a, a son, mm-hmm. as an uncle, as a brother, as a friend, in every possible way. I had no idea this silly thing. Weight was on my yeah. shoulders, it went. And... My acting became less about disguise and escape and more about reality and revelation. And uh, that, of course, is a quality that the camera picks up on. And and so perhaps it's no chance that uh, my film career did take off once I was happy to say I was gay. Interesting. Well, so to come back to Richard III, it's interesting that that would be the, the breakthrough one because it kind of combined... Obviously, cinematic element, and by your design, I, I clearly you co-wrote it, uh, produced it, starred in it, uh, um, co-adapted. I should say, otherwise, it sounds like <laughs> yeah, the, Shakespeare wrote yes. all, all the words in, in Richard's over written by William right, Shakespeare. Right. Thank you. William. Well, it reminds me of the with the taming of the shrew uh, uh, screenplay by William Shakespeare, additional dialogue by Sam Taylor. <laughs> that was true. <laughs> I love that story. But so here you are. You've you've. It's a role that you're familiar with and, yes. and comfortable in. Maybe it's changed a little bit for the screen to have a more contemporary feel. Yeah. But um, it was obviously something that you were able to step into quite comfortably. And I yeah. wonder, what is it about Shakespeare that um, you are drawn to? Oh. Well, I, just, I discovered Shakespeare very young. My elder sister, who was keen on the theatre, took me to go and see amateur productions. Macbeth, I saw very early on. Wonderful. Easy play to understand. Uh, Thrilling. Short. The most popular play he wrote, perhaps because of that. Oh, what? I don't know. The the stories are fantastic, in the way the fairy tales are fantastic. They they can appeal to kids. But the language, it's not as difficult to listen to as perhaps it is to speak. I mean, you you have to be a practitioner. You can't play Mozart unless you really can play the piano or the violin or whatever it is. Uh, and I don't recommend that you start reading Shakespeare to understand it anymore. And I would recommend reading Mozart. You've got to hear Mozart. You've got to hear Shakespeare. And that's the trick of it. And 
you would think, well, why would a play written all those years ago for just men to act in, written for an open-air theatre, about events that are a little far, rather far removed from us today still be appealing? Well, it's because, you have to face up to it, William Shakespeare knew more about human nature than anyone who's ever lived or, or could express, mm-hmm. uh, allow different characters to, to be themselves. And um, that does... F- the camera rather likes that. You know... One of the great features of a lot of Shakespeare plays is there are soliloquies. There are moments when the action stops, other characters leave the stage, and the character, usually the main one, is left alone on the stage to to be or not to be. That's the question. And talk not to themselves, not to another character, but to you, the audience. Wow. Will that work? On the on the screen, well, it works on the TV screen mm-hmm. because we're very used to people looking at us and telling us what the news is or what the weather is or what their opinions are, and so it's it's very uh, a soliloquy. It really fits the TV screen. The challenge is, can that also fit the um, the big screen, the cinema screen? And uh, Lawrence Olivier, who did a lot of Shakespeare mm-hmm. on film, wasn't always certain. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh, not always certain mm-hmm. how to deal with soliloquies. Uh, uh, and looking at their work, I thought, no, it'll work. And so Richard III talks directly through through the camera, out of the screen, into the auditorium. And suddenly Shakespeare seems to be not an old writer at all, but bang up to date. Now's the winter of our discontent. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you, would, <laughs> you wouldn't want only to do Shakespeare on film. Uh, of course not. And, and in the end, although they're called talkies... And I, when we were doing Richard III, I kept telling people, this is a talkie. <laughs> there will be words. Right, right. There can't be long camera shots. It's not all about what it looks like. It's what it sounds like. And it's for an audience, audio, listening. Mm-hmm. Not, as, not viewers, not spectators. Um, uh, it, it, it can work. But Lord of the Rings, you know, there are, there are minutes... 20 minutes on end in Lord of the Rings when not a word is spoken. Mm-hmm. And that's magical too. Yeah. And there's music playing and there's lots to look at. So the cinema actually can take an awful lot uh, of different approaches and Shakespeare can be one of them. Now, you have twice uh, taken the approach of working with Bill Condon. And the first time, uh, the, the, the second time is the film that uh, we're here most recently, you know, your most recent film we'll be talking about uh, more in depth than any of them. But first, we should talk about Gods and Monsters because, A, unbelievable performance you as James Whale uh, in, you know, the filmmaker late in his life. Um, but first, I want to understand how you came to Bill Condon and why. It, I would imagine it worked because you chose to work with him again. So what what was it that happened on that set? It was a part of a lifetime, or my lifetime. James Whale came from my part of the country in the north of England. He came to London to be an actor. He started directing. He loved the theatre. He was a designer as well. He came to Hollywood. Uh, that's a journey I've taken. Yes. <laughs> uh, and he stayed in Hollywood, unlike me. Uh, and he was gay. And he made no bones about it. I'm talking, this is the mid-1930s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The highest paid director in Hollywood, openly gay. This is uh, iconic. And for a lot of gay people, he he is. Um, mm-hmm. He's a hero. He, he would have been, I think, appalled by that. He, he was a rather discreet man. He didn't, didn't 
doesn't draw attention to himself particularly, but he, he was not going to lie. He, he was himself. And if you look at if you look at his movies from that point of view, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and, and many others, there is a campness. There's there, there, there's a, there's a, a wryness. There's a there's a wink uh, <laughs> happening uh, in front of the camera often and, and behind it, and a sensibility which gay people can immediately pick up on. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill Condon's gay. It appealed to him. Uh, it appealed to me too. Uh, and I even look a little bit, little bit like James Wells. So it was all absolutely perfect, and it wasn't hard work because it was all rather easy for mm-hmm. me to do. Ah, Bill, like me, he's mad about the theatre. Last year he directed a, a, a sideshow, a, a musical on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, and this man makes major movies as well. I mean, he's my sort of <laughs> person. And we um, were instantly friends. And I've often asked directors, please, will you help me how to act in front of the camera? And Bill did. But Bill gave sound advice uh, at the moment. That don't do too much, you know. Pull back. I'm mm-hmm. more angry. But uh, more reflective or whatever. Don't look there and look here. All those very, very helpful little tips. And it, I noticed he wasn't just doing that for me. He was doing it to everybody. Mm-hmm. The actors, the cameramen, makeup. He knows everything that's going on. Not a control freak. Mm-hmm. He wants you to do your own thing, but he's going, he's going to be there to direct, and that's what directors should do. Try going over there. Doesn't come with you. Sends you off. So everyone's enthralled to him and feels safe. That's the point. And if it's an indie movie with, with no money, mm-hmm. today we have to do the big scene. You feel in safe hands, and 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 you become a unit and, and a family, and that's very important when you don't have any time and much money. Extraordinary thing is, I've just done a third movie with Bill. Is that right? I didn't know that. Um, Beauty and the Beast. Fantastic. The the, the the live action version of the Disney film, and at Pinewood in, in outside London, he's got two hundred extras dancing. He's got as many technicians around. They all know Bill. He knows them. He casts <laughs> them. And you never see a bad move, a bad p- performance in a Bill Campbell that movie. True. That's a sign of, of a good director. And again, there he is in. Um, Beauty and the Beast holding a, a big party right. rather than a small one. So, and he's, I, we've stayed friends over the years. Every time I went out to Middle Earth, yeah. from London to <laughs> Wellington in New Zealand, I used right. to stop off in LA and stay with uh, Bill and his partner. Oh, that's great. And uh, so we stayed friends and we kept saying, uh, when can we find something to do together? And he called me up one day and said, I've uh, I found it. Mr. Holmes, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, you, you mentioned the fact that you never did move to L.A., and I wonder, even mm. after Gods and Monsters, uh, you have your Oscar nomination, first Oscar nomination, right? Yes. Uh, very well received overall, uh, did well. Um, was it tempting at then or at any other time to move here, as so many other Brits have done over uh, the years for, for yes. movies? Uh, 
Gods and Monsters was my second movie in Hollywood. My first was directed by Brown Singer, Apt Pupil, mm-hmm. with the late Brad Renfro. Mm-hmm. Both those in little movies were made in the heart of Hollywood. Uh, and uh, I felt very much at home. I was here for a year. Mm-hmm. I was living up in the Hollywood hills. I liked the sun being up in the morning before I was. And I got lots of friends here. It, it, very comfortable mm-hmm. indeed. And then I missed home, of course. The friends back mm-hmm. home, my own home there or the culture that I'm a part of and it wouldn't have made sense for me to have stayed on not knowing what job I was going to do next and anyway probably after those two films the next job I'd want to do might be in the live theatre and Mm -hmm. that's all back home really Mm -hmm. although I've toured often enough so no it was never a temptation for me to come here and and I would I always feel I'm always aware that I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a Californian. Mm. <laughs> I can't do a decent American accent. I'm not. I'm, I'm English, uh, and that's what I bring uh, to stuff that I do, I suppose. But uh, so, no, I, I would never want to set uh, to, to put roots down here. Uh, but I do keep coming back. It's true. Yes. Now there are moments in everybody's life where, I guess, every moment where if you do one thing, things will be different forever after that. In your case, uh, I think one of those moments was when you were offered Mission Impossible 2. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Luck. No. Young actors say, what's the secret? Luck. But be ready for it. Mm-hmm. The luck will arrive and be ready for it. I and mean, sometimes it comes in disguise and you think it's bad luck. And, and uh, yeah, uh, Tom Cruise and his um, producing partner invited me to be in that movie at Mission Impossible 2 they wouldn't show me the script they'd only show me the a scene that my character was in well I'm so used to reading a script Mm -hmm. a play script or a film a screenplay and uh, understanding what it's like as a whole I I couldn't get a, a, a grasp on this so I said, no, my agent said, you're turning down the chance to be in a big movie. It's going to be a huge success. Tom right. Cruise is in. I said, well, it would be lovely, but I don't know what the story is. Right. And if I'd done that movie, mm-hmm. which was delayed and delayed and delayed, I would have missed out doing the first X-Men, and I would have missed out doing the, um, Lord of the Rings. Well, yeah, because and the, all three, because it's not luck, like, well, obviously. Luck, I mean, luck, uh, luck, yeah. luck, luck, luck. But, you know, who knows? It may have all gone in another direction, which I would have enjoyed, but uh, there we are. That's what happened. So with with regards to Lord of the Rings, this idea that you were going to have to go off for a year to make three movies, uh, was that – that's a big commitment. And I just wonder, you know, what sold you on the idea and were you ready for what it was in terms of the scale of the production, of the reception, all of it? Did you anticipate that? I I remember Bill Condon's partner, Jack, saying – Ian, you know your life's going to change forever. I said, what? What do you want about? <laughs> he said, you wait. Well, he knew what I rapidly discovered, that there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who loved the books by Tolkien, who with some uh, nervousness were anticipating the arrival at last of the movies, which could not have been made until they were, if the technology of filmmaking uh, hadn't reached a pitch where the spectacle uh, could be achieved without looking corny. Uh, Well, 
a year away from home, I've been on tour mm-hmm. as, as an actor. I, I felt I was on tour. It turned out New Zealand was the most congenial place in the world to live. I really love it. Mm-hmm. No language problems. An alien culture, but very interesting, beautiful scenery. And a, a movie, <laughs> a, a big home movie made by Peter Jackson in an old paint factory. This was before <laughs> he had got the state-of-the-art stuff that he's got now mm-hmm. in, in Wellington in New Zealand. And, and uh, it was a little bit hand-to-mouth, uh, but the internet had just been invented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I can remember the internet arriving. <laughs> And you were emailing and everything, and then so. So I started uh, blogging. I didn't call it blogging. I called it e-post. I, ah. From my website, I began to send out messages to the world about what was going on. And Peter Jackson did the same because we are both aware and enjoy the fact that we're making movies for an audience. Mm-hmm. That's why we're doing it. Yeah, no, it's not for our own satisfaction yeah. alone. It's because we want to share. Mm-hmm. Well, the studio were furious. We were going under their radar. We have a publicity department. We have a marketing department. We decide what the world's going to know. And and they did do a bit of censorship. I wasn't allowed to talk about certain things. But we detected that there was a huge audience, nervous. And I kept saying, look, it is going to be Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. It can't be yours. Mm-hmm. If you want to make it like you want to make it, go and make yeah, it. Right. He's, but he's the guy doing it. And he chose to design it... Uh, Two of the greatest illustrators of Tolkien, uh, Alan Lee and uh, John Howe. And so when the fans came to see the movie, what they saw was the illustrations in uh, three two uh, moving um, versions that they had were already familiar with in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The number of people who said to me, you look exactly as I always imagined <laughs> uh, Gandalf would look. Well, if they'd read the book, really, they would have wanted a character whose eyebrows were so long they came out beyond <laughs> the brim of his hat. <laughs> you weren't going there. You though. can't do that no. in the movie? No. What I looked like was mm-hmm. not as Tolkien described him, but as John Howe and Alan Lee had illustrated mm-hmm. him. So we send out the message. You're going to like this, I think, because we like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, cross your fingers and, and see you uh, at the premiere. By the time the first movie came out, huge success, mm-hmm. and a number of Oscar nominations, uh, and we went back to New Zealand to, to finish off the second and third, we were in that amazing position of, of making big, expensive movies for a very big audience who couldn't wait to wait see them. them. Yeah. Usually, you cross your fingers, will we get the f- film made? Yeah. Will anyone come and see it? Will we get any decent reviews? Are we wasting our time? But we knew in this case that we weren't. And that's when it was obvious to me that, yeah, my life would change because uh, those films were so popular everywhere in the world. And I, it's lovely for me. I mean, well, that's what I have to ask you because it was interesting that another Brit who played something of a uh, guru, with, uh, you know, a wizard kind of character, uh, made another trilogy uh, uh, and uh, his name was Alec Guinness, and it yes, was Star Wars. I know. And for the rest of his life, he kind of bristled at the fact that most people in the world knew him for Star Wars. I know. And so was that a concern of yours or an annoyance to you? Well, all respect to George Lucas. Uh, yeah. I, I play Gandalf, you yeah. know, written by Tolkien, the yeah. great writer. And uh, I, that's a great part. Two parts, actually. Gandalf the White and Gandalf yes. the Great. You know, I... Uh, I 
Gandalf for president. I mean, this is big stuff. <laughs> and uh, I don't mind the fact that people who've seen me play Gandalf um, haven't looked up the DVD of me playing Macbeth with Judy right. Dench. But if they did, they'd enjoy it. I think you so. Know? And uh, you, you can't, you can't grumble. If, 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 if your life is dedicated to telling stories for audiences, if you get a massive audience, well, of course, that's wonderful. And, and why should you uh, get upset if they don't know that you've done other things? Mm-hmm. That's, that's that's all right. Right. I always do get a kick though out of Christopher Plummer. He can't. He just can't let it go about sound of music. He says he calls it sound of mucus. He, I, we did a podcast like this, and he just you could tell he he it's it's not something that makes him happy. But and I get it. But what, I think what you're saying also, you know, it's nice to be known for something. Well, I you know it was uh, the celebrity which came with uh, Gandalf was accompanied by similar attention for uh, Magneto in X-Men. Yes. So that was in the extraordinary situation of being in two, I, I will not use that word franchise, they're not, they're films. <laughs> right. Series of films. Uh, and uh, that they should be happening at the same time was at least alerted people to the fact that I'm, uh, I do, I can't play more than one yes. part. I, I suppose that's what uh, Chris Plummer was, was yes, objecting yes, to. Yes, yes, exactly. And, uh, well, thank goodness he's still still at it. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Now, yeah. A, a thing that I read was that you were kind of specializing in playing older fellows since Cambridge, right? <laughs> so for that to happen in in Lord of the Rings and now again in Mr. Holmes, what is, is it something that you uh, – what do you enjoy about that? Well, if I had to define myself, I'd say I was a character actor mm-hmm. rather than the romantic leading actor mm-hmm. or uh, whatever. I do, I do like being different. It's it's fun, mm-hmm. and for me, it's easier than just being myself. I mean, just to look like me and be somebody else inside—that's the real test for me. But you know, pop on a nose, <laughs> beard, wig, uh, costume, uh, and really total transformation. That that. That's the ultimate fun, but it's not the ultimate challenge. The, the the real challenge is to just look like yourself, but be different. And uh, uh, but I, I do those that sort sure. of stuff as well. But yeah, well, these are the parts that come your way. Yeah, so um, I, I was too old to be playing, um, too young rather to be playing James Well. I think. I, I'm a bit too young to be playing the old mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes, but then I, I I do play a younger Sherlock yeah. Holmes in Mr. Holmes. Yeah, and you make it work. G- Gandalf, of course, is is over seven thousand years old, but uh, next stop, God, I suppose. Ah, oh, well, I heard that. Uh, now, did Christopher Lee have something to say to you? <laughs> <laughs> I arrived in uh, Wellington uh, with with considerable jet lag. You yeah. can imagine having travelled across the world. Right. And Peter Jackson had organised a very nice dinner for me and and the Hobbits, who I met for yes. the first time. Um, uh, Christopher was next to me, hello, how you uh, And he, he spoke a little bit of black speech from, uh, which is, is in the uh, in the script. And I said, well, that's very impressive. Well, I read uh, Lord of the Rings once every year for the last 30 years. I thought, I don't believe that, but anyway, that's what he said. And he said, I thought I should always play Gandalf. 
<laughs> and what do you? That was say? that was my welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you say in response I to said, that? Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, tough You'll luck. have to make do with Saruman. Yeah. Right. And he did very well too. Absolutely. Now, um, one of the uh, one last thing about that, if I if I may, is just that. Um, well, first of all, the the for that kind of a massive scale project to work, you guys have to. I would imagine you have to like the people around you, and it sounds like. Mm. Um, well, first of all, you have to be very prepared. And I read that you maybe didn't read it for thirty years, but you certainly listened to uh, Tolkien himself read it. Yeah, but I, I I found this little snippet. I think he was reading The Hobbit, mm. and it was clear from the way he read it that uh, he relished the idea of the words being spoken out loud. And of course, he may have written *The Hobbit*, which was the f- book he wrote first, uh, to be read by a parent, maybe to a young child. It has that element to it. Yeah. And I took comfort from that that he would uh, not have objected to the parts being acted. Mm-hmm. And after all, he had signed away the film rights. I mean, he, he was prepared yeah. for, for that to happen. Um, otherwise, I didn't do much preparation. What preparation could you do, really? Yeah. I, I once the makeup was right and. Uh, as, as with Mr. Holmes, the makeup mm-hmm. was crucial for Gandalf. I sort of saw him looking back out of the mirror at me, and uh, it felt it looked right, and so it felt right, and everything else followed from that. So that's how I began to get into Gandalf. And was I mean between that and X Men and some of the other stuff? It, it, what do you make of green screen acting, that kind of thing? There's less of it than you'd think. If you see Gandalf on top of a mountain, he was there. Really? Mm. I mean, carried up by a helicopter, maybe. <laughs> uh, but right. you then go back into the studio and pick up a yeah. few close-ups. Well, that's the green screen mm-hmm. behind. will make it clear that uh, you really are back up on the mountain. Uh, there, the, There is a complication when you're playing a character who is taller than most of the other characters. Oh, yeah. Gandalf is larger, you may have yes, noticed, than yes. the dwarves or, 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 or the hobbits, smaller still. And that can, Im- one method of doing that is very simple. You just put the large character closer to the camera. So is that how bigger. they did it, really? Well, of course, when that happens normally, your, your eye adjusts yeah. and says yeah. he's not really bigger, he just yeah. looks bigger. But yeah. if you're told that that guy is bigger, then the reverse it. is true. You accept it, yeah. But there are other ways of doing it yeah. which are less congenial, which involve perhaps not being in the same space mm-hmm. as the actors that you're talking to. And um, that's not easy. And 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 uh, I asked for us to do as little of that as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter was aware of the problem. But it, it, it's a fact. I never actually got to act with either Elijah Wood or Martin Freeman. Really? But you did, you did. Uh, because I wasn't allowed to look at them in the eye. <laughs> I, I, where did I, I have see. to look? Oh, I had, to, I had to look at their belt, their belly button. That was the instruction. I looked down and they looked up and they sort of looked at the top of my hat. And sometimes we find ourselves looking at each other and burst out laughing because that wasn't allowed. Oh my goodness. Well, so it, it was a tec- technical problem all the time. Uh, and the only part really of the filming of those, uh, movies that was um, 
not as pleasant as it could have been. Now, Mr. Holmes, on the other hand, would be a completely... I, I looked at Laura Linney the whole time. I was going to say, this is just old, good old-fashioned acting, right? It I mean, is, not, yes. not, uh, <laughs> not uh, high-tech in any particular way, no, right? No, no. Even the bees. I, I, I did say to Bill, I'm, I'm not working with bees. <laughs> he so, said, you are. I said, you can CGI them. You can put them in later. He said, this is an independent movie. Right, where's we that can't afford. We can't afford special effects like that. So you accepted bees. And I went to bee school. I, I, a man taught me how to... Um, really? Yeah, attend to them. Bees bees have a short life, and they've got a lot to do, and they're very busy, and they know what they're doing. You just have to keep out of their way and, right. and not disturb them too much. You dose them with a bit of smoke and right. talk to them nicely, and they're fine. Now, this idea of Sherlock Holmes, this is a guy who, since Basil Rathbone, people have seen, yeah. and particularly recently Robert Downey, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. on and on and on. Is it... I, th- I don't think I think daunting would be the wrong word, but is it? Uh, how do you? What do you feel about playing somebody who so many other people have already played? Which, being a theater guy, is not new to you. No, you know, you play Hamlet. You can't right. worry that you're the thousandth <laughs> actor this century to play Hamlet. Right, right. Do you know the year I was playing Hamlet in London? Uh, some critics said we can't see Hamlet again. I'm sorry. <laughs> There have been ten Hamlets this year already. Oh, we can't see it in an Right. So. <laughs> well, Benedict Cumberbatch is following you yes, now. Yes, <laughs> play, he's playing Hamlet with great success right. in London. Well, th- this didn't really apply to Holmes because our script, nobody else had ever played. Right. And, and this was, anyway, it's a new take on it. But mm-hmm. the, the idea of this our version is that Sherlock Holmes is a real person, not a, not a fictional one. Um, that There are many differences. And... Uh, so, no, it, it it didn't worry me at all. I think it's 130 actors have played Sherlock Holmes. Is that right? And f- coming in from LAX to yesterday, uh, along the freeway, there's, there's a big sign that said, Sherlock Holmes, I did a double take, it's <laughs> David Arquette, live on stage. Seriously? Seriously. So, uh, uh, here we are, uh, as we speak, there, there's another, another actor <laughs> playing Sherlock Holmes. And good luck to Well, him. what is it about him, and I understand this is a totally different... Look at him, it's a different time period. You're, we're seeing him at 60, we're seeing him at 93, which I don't think we've ever seen. Um, and minus a lot of the iconography, the hat, the pipe, it's gone The with real human frailties. Um, why, do why though, do people continue to return to this guy? Just let me tell you, the deer stalker is never mentioned. Nowhere no. in the right. Conan Doyle, no. So. <laughs> Ear-flapping hat, I think he calls it. Wow. And it was William Gillette, an American, the first guy to popularise Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. on stage, mm-hmm. who wore a deerstalker. The calabash curly pipe that uh, curves out of the mouth and is held below the chin yeah. by, by the hand was, again, his invention. And he had that so that the audience in the orchestra stalls could see his face. The pipe wouldn't get in the way. So that iconic image, it's not Conan Doyle, it's an actor. Unbelievable. Anyway, so here we are. Um... What was your question? I'm sorry. Well, I guess I'm that uh, I'm trying to remember myself. I think. Well, what is the so? What is the so, so allure what, of yes? Sherlock well, it's it's a detective, isn't it? It is. Uh, look at the TV listings. Everything's a detective story. Right. If it's not in a hospital, well, probably it could be as well. <laughs> right. It's about how do you solve the mystery? And right. I think why are we? Why do we like to do that? Why do I like to do crosswords and Sudoku? It's because you can solve it. And there is an end. Yeah. There is an answer. There is a certainty. Yeah. Life ain't like that. <laughs> so it's an escape, isn't it? Yeah, right. And we sit and we try and solve the puzzle. Uh, well, um, um, 
Sherlock Holmes was the first of these uh, to do it popularly, and, and and he. But of course, he's an intriguing personality. But would you want to spend the evening with Sherlock? It might Holmes? be a little much. Ooh. Yeah. And, well, okay. being an actor though is not unlike being a detective, right? I mean, you have to do a lot of. Uh, Any time you play a character, I mean, it's d- mm-hmm. different approaches. But I mean, do you as an actor uh, connect with Sherlock Holmes? I can tell from the crumpled nature of your. The collar on your shirt that you put it on without ironing it, which means that last night you had spent the night away from home. You know, so on, so on, so on. Uh, yeah, obser- he's, an ob- he's an observationist, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so there is that, there is that connection. Uh, what I like about our Mr. Holmes is that by the end, he is someone you'd spend, want to spend an evening mm-hmm. with. He's, he's rather congenial, mm-hmm. even genial. Mm-hmm. He holds hands with his... Um, Housekeeper, who's reviled throughout the story, really, until they reach a reconciliation at the end. He 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 discovers love. Actually, he defines mm-hmm. his ability, which we all need. Uh, and you feel his heart is beating mm-hmm. for the first time, regularly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been the appeal of this. It's rather an optimistic story that even at ninety-three, it's not too late. And with this kid, he's he's got a protege in a sense. Another that's true, and and he tells the little lad off when he's cruel to his mother, mm-hmm. which mothers will like. It, yes, and and fathers yes. And, and and everybody will yes. like because he sees in that little boy the way he has treated people mm-hmm. in the past, dismissed them, right? And uh, yeah, so it's a story of redemption, if you like, and. Which is nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes. It's 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 to do with life. And uh, I I thought this movie would just appeal to people who wanted a new take on 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 the old master. But it turns out that um, yeah, yeah, people say it's exactly like my father when he was dying. And uh, you know you're onto something when a member of the audience tells you it's exactly like something they've experienced. Well, for you. Uh to be going, you, you're in between the two ages of the Sherlock's that you're portraying. We yeah. going backwards and then going ahead uh, quite a bit. Does it make you think about uh, anything you know about yourself? Do you find that uh, was it a challenge to figure out what it's going to be like to be 93? I mean, what? How, how did you approach that aspect of it? Mm. Well, I'd see my stepmother. Uh, struggle towards being a hundred before she died uh, railing in a quiet way why am I still alive friends that have died preceded her she, aches and pains discomforts aware that there was memory loss and so on uh, but you don't really have to have observed it to feel it mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have you gone into the next room and said, why did I come in here? <laughs> you know? You don't have to be old. Right, totally. What was I just saying? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you just exaggerate that in yourself and, 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 and be aware that, you know, every day in your life has some intimation of, of mortality. And it has affected me, actually, playing him so close to death and, and yet holding on because I I put aside nine months quite recently I would not work and I would write my autobiography I'd write my memoir ah. and I must say the advance was so generous that I could have retired there you go 
Anyway. The Lord of the Rings probably did that for you. Not quite. No. No, 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 no. So I start to imagine this book, uh, which takes me back. And I realize, along with Sherlock's looking back, that the things that in my life that were unresolved, my relationship with my parents, my mother died when I was 12, oh. my dad when I was 24, neither of them knew that I was gay. I was robbed of that wonderful moment when they could have hugged me mm-hmm. and said, we love you. Mm-hmm. And then I imagined them as young people when I was born, just before the war, and they couldn't know the war was going to happen, and then it did, and the effect it had on their life. And then my mother died when she was 44. They didn't know that was coming. And I was sitting there tearing up, trying trying to write my... Um, about the month when I was born. And I thought, if I want to delve into that, is it something that I want to share with other people? Will mm-hmm. they be interested? I, I didn't know, and I, I felt uh, it was easier and more comfortable to retreat, really. And so I think that was related to having played Interesting. Home. So you mm. set it aside. Mm. Mm. Uh, last question yep. is... Uh, where will you be at 93? Are you going to keep acting? Are Ooh. you uh, is, is, is retirement something that ever crosses your mind, or are we going to be lucky enough to have, you know, many more years of... Uh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to retire. Mm-hmm. I might be retired, as it were. <laughs> you know, the joints might give up. Right. Or, or I've got contemporaries who can't remember lines anymore, and so they stop acting. Yeah. Uh, if my health keeps me standing and mobile... Mm-hmm. I, I hope I can go on acting. I I would love to. And not all the time, but just just still be able to do it. it it's what I do best in life. I, I plenty of areas of my life where I'm absolutely hopeless, with the exception <laughs> of cooking scrambled eggs. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so to hold on on to the certainties of of, of my uh, of acting and the enjoyment I get from it, and the fulfilment and the feeling alive. It would be stupid to throw that aside. But who knows what might happen. You know, if my legs go, I can do radio. That's right. Okay? <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you, and I thank had a you. great conversation. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.